Hello and welcome to a Thursday episode of the State of the Nova Nation. I'm Eugene Rapay. He's Chris Stanzial. And as Coach Jay Wright always, always preaches, it's all about attitude. Very big apologies for not having an episode on Tuesday. I would love to know the odds of the circumstance of what just happened on Tuesday. But there I was just before sunrise and the computer glitched out. We literally lost a beautiful episode. Shout out to Perry Wagner, our Butler insider, who had honestly some great insights that no one will get to hear. The episode was completely destroyed, unrecoverable. We were very frustrated and I was bitter for that whole Tuesday. But as Jay Wright preaches, you got to control what you control, baby. We're back here. It's Thursday, new day. The sun has risen and we are rolling. And Chris, I know Tuesday was a really big bummer, but I'm ready for today. I'm pumped. I'm ready to move ahead. Look ahead. We're coming off a huge win at Hinkle Fieldhouse. And then we've got always a fun game to look forward to when the Seton Hall Pirates and Villanova Wildcats collide on the court. It's always a good time. How are you doing? I'm sorry you wasted your time on Tuesday, but I hopefully, you know, we're recording now. So far, the first minute, so good. Hopefully, no glitches. We're, we're yeah. down a couple men, so yeah. hopefully this works out. <laughs> I think we'll be okay now. There's no way this could happen back to back. I was kind of upset that the episode wasn't able to get published because Perry really sounded like Tony Romo out there. And basically, anything he said in our discussion with us came true during the game. And it's a shame that it wasn't able to get put out there. But, hey, we got the win. And... Even though I thought it was a bad omen that they don't, that the episode didn't get published and the file was corrupted, and I was like, "Uh oh, this is not good for Tuesday." Able to come out with the dub, and now we got the uh, the always exciting Seton Hall Pirates coming on Sunday. Should be good. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm pretty hyped. I'm pretty hyped. I think that game on Tuesday night really turned around that day because I was so bothered by the computer glitches, just post production, just crashing and burning. And then I was there. I was like, oh, my God, they're going to go to Hinkle Fieldhouse. Villanova obviously hasn't been so hot the last couple of trips going over there. But this time around, under the beautiful guidance of Eric Pascal, Phil Booth, Colin Gillespie, Nova came out on top to an 80-72 to win on Tuesday night. This was a game that pretty much went down as expected. It was a complete slugfest in the first half. Wasn't easy. Butler giving Nova a game. And then in the second half, Nova got... A little 9-0 run to push the lead into double digits. Got a little separation. And then from there, just made the necessary plays to come out on top. I really wish Tuesday's episode was able to come into fruition because Perry pretty much called it. Between the player scouting reports, what needs to happen for Nova to win, or what Butler would need to do in order to take control over the Wildcats, pretty much, I would say, 99.9% correct. This game, Chris... Was just such a good one. What were your thoughts about it? What were your thoughts on the Cats? What do you think about the Bulldogs? Obviously, Hinkle Fieldhouse gives so many nationers anxiety. But this time around, we're good, at least for this year. Yeah, I guess the trick is just to go into Hinkle not being ranked number one because they, they seem to win when they're not one. Because the past two losses, they've been the number one team in the nation. Just weird how that works. But yeah, so some positives from this game. The seniors are still good. That's a good thing. Although, I will say, you look at the box score, you see Phil Booth went 4-12 from the field and 1-5 of from three. And I've been critical of him for pretty much the whole year, but it did not feel like he played that bad. I thought he had a pretty damn good game. 17 points, 5 assists, 4 boards. He had that one big block at the end that was pretty uh, cool and got me all hyped up. Uh, I thought he had a fantastic game. He got the buckets when he needed it. And he did play 39 minutes, which I guess we will talk about the whole minute distribution later. And then Eric Pascal, 
he hit every big shot that Villanova needed, especially when anytime Butler seemed to try to crawl back into this game, he hit a big shot, hit a big three right in the face of the defender. He went eight of 16 from the field, five of 10 from deep. And again, I feel like that box score is misleading because I thought it was actually better than that. And that was good for 23 points. Also contributed on the boards as well with five. And I got to say, Colin Gillespie had that like little mini 6-0 run. I think it might even been a 9-0 run. He hit those three big threes all off the catch and shoot. Great game from him. He continues the hot uh, shooting. Jermaine Samuels, I know he only had one basket, but it was a pretty big one. It was off that rebound, offensive rebound, where he just basically took Brunk and just threw him aside, grabbed the ball, and went up for the dunk. So I thought that was a pretty big play from him. And yeah, it was pretty much the only play offensively from him, but I thought defensively he had a pretty good game. He got schooled early on on one of the pump fakes from Brunk, but then after that, I thought he pretty much locked him down. Sadiq Bey hit some big shots. I thought he played a good game. And Demir Cosby Roundtree off the bench, contributing 10 points. So yeah, I, I was all I was pretty happy all across the board offensively and defensively. I, I know at least initially a lot of, seemed like the defense was going to struggle, but they were able to gel together, and I, I was pretty happy with the performance. I never felt like this game was going to get out of control where Butler would just go on a big run. I felt that the offense was going to hit a big shot at some point to just kind of stymie that Butler run and take the crowd out of it. And for most of the game, they did. Yeah, Eric Pascal was absolutely cash money. Just pulling up with pure confidence with a man in his face, hitting threes, falling over, getting the big offensive rebounds and putbacks, getting the big offensive rebounds and putbacks. He was fantastic. Phil Booth, before we recorded the show, and you were like, Did you know Phil Booth was four for 12? And I was thinking, Nah, that nah, nah, there's no way. There's no way. He, he was a lot better than that. I couldn't believe the, the box score at all, but it didn't feel like it. It didn't feel like he was having an inefficient night like that. Colin Gillespie, as we would have pointed out on Tuesday, when this man is in the catch and shoot, as Catherine Ryan has spoken about on the show previously in the past, when he is looking for his own shots, spotting up on the three-point line, just pulling, not even trying to initiate or dribble penetrate, just standing still, catch and shoot, pull up, bang. He is very good at that, and it was another great showing from the three-point line. Obviously, he was just excellent against Xavier, as we saw when him and Phil Booth were just shooting the lights out. And then once again, another efficient performance for him going three for five from beyond the arc at Hinkle Fieldhouse. Sadiq Bey had a nice game. Demir Cosby Roundtree, still healthy, still rolling, still rocking. I loved their play. Sadiq Bey coming in with 10.7 boards. And then Demir Cosby Roundtree, another very efficient night, another strong night on the glass, came off the bench, added 10 points, 8 rebounds. I'm loving what I'm seeing from DCR. It's good. I'm glad that he's healthy again. The tibia doesn't seem to be a problem at all. Joe Cremo, I know there's many, many mixed emotions about that. We'll get into him in a little bit, but he had 7 points, hit one of two threes. But I just want to applaud the defense that Villanova did on Kamar Baldwin. Kamar Baldwin, without a doubt, especially last year in both meetings, absolutely decimated. Villanova. He is a Swiss army knife. He is very versatile. He's very good at doing literally almost everything. He is the Bulldogs leading man. Now that Keelan Martin's gone, he can score. He can rebound. He can assist. Plays very good, tough defense. He can generate turnovers. Very, very good at it. He barely did anything against Nova. I did not feel like he was a threat at all when he was on the floor because of the job that the Wildcats did on him. He only had 11 points on five of 14 shooting. 
just three rebounds, three assists. He killed Nova last year. A couple years before that, that was his coming out party against the Wildcats. He was not a really big factor against Nova. And also, aside from him, the way that Nova was able to shut down or slow down Jordan Tucker, who was coming in with tons of momentum, the former Nova target out of high school, former Duke Blue Devil transferring to Butler, eligible now on this, for the second half of this regular season. He came off of that really hot shooting performance. But against Nova, he was only 3 for 9 from long range, only had 11 points. It took a, a good game from Aaron Thompson, who led the Bulldogs with 15 points, and Sean McDermott, who's a sniper, who went 4 of 8. But other than that, just the way that Nova was able to hold off Butler, like you said, especially once Nova went on that run in the second half, I thought the Wildcats played perfectly. Jay coached very well, and I had no problems with the way they executed. This was honestly one of the greatest second-half performances I'd seen from them. Oh, for sure. And I want to kind of build on your point about shutting down Baldwin. It wasn't just Baldwin they shut down. They shut down Paul Jorgensen, too. And I know Jorgensen's kind of had an up-and-down year for Butler so far, but after the way he torched Villanova at Hinkle last year, I feel like he's kind of been a marked man, at least personally, just because he went to my high school and all. I felt like he was one of the featured guys for Butler coming off the bench, especially. And he only had three points. He hit one three, went one of six from the field, did absolutely nothing. And then to your Tucker point, they did shut him down. He did put up 11, three of nine from three, but he only played 24 minutes. And I felt like even the announcers made a point about this. They're like, oh, why are they not using Jordan Tucker that much? And I was like, yeah, why aren't they using Jordan Tucker that much? But I felt like in the second half, he just got shut down. It, it was just the defense that absolutely made him useless. So they just kind of rolled with what they got, what they had. And I felt like even if when Tucker was in, they were barely utilizing him. So it was kind of Belichickian-esque from Jay Wright to kind of shut down Butler's best players and just kind of have everybody else beat you. And, you know, I'll take the occasional three from McDermott if it meant Baldwin, Tucker, and Jorgensen weren't going to hit their Raggy Bomb-esque shots or Baldwin was going to cut to the basket and hit everything. It was a pretty solid performance defensively, especially in that second half. I got to say, I was I was pretty impressed by the way they were able to gel together toward the end. Yeah, complete props to Nova for not allowing. I know you compared it to Raggy Bombs. But I thought the way that Butler shot against Nova last year when they played at Hinkle Fieldhouse, shooting over 68% as a team from long range, putting up 101 points overall on an eventual national championship winning team. They made Raggy Bombs look like party snaps at a street fair. The way that they shot the lights out just brought the house down last year. The fact that they were able to do that against a team with four different NBA caliber players just absolutely decimated them the rest of the way. It's clear that when this Butler squad plays at home, Hinkle Fieldhouse is something special. It just wasn't anything special on Tuesday night. Hinkle Magic was not a problem. But I just want to talk about your point here. Bill Belichick, Belichickian, this is the third time that I have now heard a Jay Wright, Bill Belichick comparison this season. And I don't know about you, but Jay at least dresses better, and he doesn't cheat. <laughs> he does not cheat, and he certainly dresses better. No hooded sweatshirts for Mr. Wright on the sideline. Yeah, no Emperor Palpatine feel from Jay Wright. Yeah, I got to say, I'm, I'm surprised that is not more of a meme. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I, it feels like it's, it's right there for the taking. It is low-hanging fruit. No one ever makes the comparison. At least that that's what I feel. I never see that floating around. Yeah, they're too busy focusing on Brady and Belichick and their uh... – their weird relationship. All oh, right, yeah. What did you think of the minute distribution? I kind of, I kind of alluded to it earlier. We're seeing night in and night out. Pascal and Booth are going to be playing thirty-eight minutes plus. We kind of understand that, but 
at the same time, we saw what happened in 2017 when the, basically it was five guys, five to six guys playing 35 plus minutes. What do you think? Like it, it's started, I'm still kind of worried about it, especially down the road. And especially now that Quinterly's back glued to the bench and in timeout, I don't really understand why. But uh, what, what are your thoughts on that whole situation? It's tough because on one hand, you can tell that when these two guys are on the court, Villanova just performs exponentially better. And also, they're both playing just so very well right now. They're both hot. They're both in a groove. Eric Pascal, especially in over the last couple of games, and then Phil Booth and the few games before that. But at the same time, there is no reason for these guys to be playing 38 or 39 minutes a game. Ideally, they would get a few more. At least, come on, just at least give them some more time on the bench because this is just not healthy <laughs> yeah i mean obviously you got to ride the hot hand and pascal was playing out of his mind so like i don't have a problem with him playing 30 minutes in this game but like in the next game like I, I don't know i'm just saying in general like if there's a next game where you know he's not playing as well maybe maybe just limit his minutes a bit i feel like there's a way to go about it i just don't think jay's going to do it what we're seeing now is probably what we're going to get and the swider injury probably makes it even more egregious because that's just one less body to distribute the minutes around to. And in a game like this, in a tough road environment, in a close, re- relatively close game throughout, I think he's just going to go with the guys he trusts. And I, I hate to say it, but this is what you're going to get. I, I, I hope that in the near future, Cornerly is able to blossom and play those 15 to 20 minutes a night that we all covet and want to see him play. And, you know, maybe Swider gets some more time and when he eventually heals up. And maybe DCR plays some more and – Whatever it may be, I just don't see it. It's it's how Jay operates, and we saw it in 2017, and I think we're going to kind of just see it now, too. Earlier in the year, we're like, oh, no, there's no way that it's going to sustain, that Jay's going to make them play 35 minutes a game. Like, he's just going with what's comfortable now, but then as the season goes along, he's going to start spreading out the minutes. Hopefully he he'll be smart and not run them to the ground. But Chris, I'm at the point where I'm with you. I don't think it's gonna change. I, I think we're now. Huh. What are we? 14, 15 games in. Like I, I don't see it changing. Nineteen games in. Yes. Oh, it's okay. just it's we're, what we said. What we what we see is what we're gonna get at this point. Coaches are a creature of habit. I feel, and they're going to just use the guys they trust the most. And I get it. I 100% get it. I'm not criticizing it. But I would like to see maybe in a game against, I don't know, Creighton at home where you're blowing them out or something. Just just give them minutes to somebody else. That's all. That's all. I I, I don't know. You got to limit them somehow. I just don't, I just don't want to see this team tired come February and March. That's all. Speaking of minutes, man, what's been up with JQ? It seemed like we were turning a corner. It looked like mm-hmm. things were looking good for him. And now all mm-hmm. of a sudden, last couple of games... He's just been glued on the bench. Now I understand, you know, there are things going around about his defensive abilities, but three minutes, five minutes, come on. I don't, I don't really get it. I, I just want to see him play. <laughs> like, look, I get it. He has a defensive lapse and it looks bad. And then that's it. You, you don't see him the rest of the game. If Quinterly makes a defensive lapse, you don't see him the rest of the game. But why is everybody else able to fight through it? Why were people of the past, all the top recruits of the past, able to fight through those defensive lapses? Why can't Quinterly? I think it's a, a simple question. I understand why Jay would rather go with the other guys because he wants to win, whatever. I get it, I get it, I get it. But at some point, you're going to have to have JQ figure it out. And 
sitting on the bench because he made one defensive lapse, I feel like kind of hurts the confidence a bit. I mean, I don't know how he would respond, but personally, I would probably feel hurt about that. I would be so nervous on defense that I would probably actually screw up more. And if, if that's the reason why he's sitting, then it's it kind of sucks because I would like to see his offensive abilities shine because I feel that the offense is worth the occasional mental lapse on defense. And I feel like everybody has a mental lapse on defense. So I feel like you got to let him fight through it at some point. I feel like Butler is a tough environment, so I get it. But maybe like the next time, I don't know when the next road game is, but just have him fight through it on the road. You got, cause it seems to be that when games on the road for Villanova, he's playing less and less. He was pretty much a ghost in the box score. Only played three minutes, took a single shot. Didn't, Turned the ball over, didn't have any assists, didn't have any rebounds, didn't score any points. Just not even, you know, pass recruits. I know, you know, that's what the comparison was at. But I have yet to receive a good answer as to, and I know this is, this seems to be the, this isn't picking on Joe Cremo by any means, but this seems to be the go-to comparison for people in this argument where, you know, how come Joe Cremo can miss defensive assignments and still get like 18, 19, 20 minutes a night? While Javon Quinterly misses one guy on like a switch and then boom, glued to the bench for the rest of the game. I have yet to see a good enough reason as to why Cremo gets more. You know, I know people are like, oh, well, Javon Quinterly's not playing because, you know, he's not that good on defense or, you know, he's, he's got defensive problems. He's not physically big. He's not physically strong. So he's kind of a liability. But when Joe Cremo leaves a guy wide open or someone else messes up on switches and then you have a guy get left wide open in the corner and the opposing team drains a three. You know, I've yet to see a reason as to why, I, you know, <laughs> if anyone's there, I'm down for it. You know, you know where to find me on Twitter. <laughs> but I have not heard a, a reason as to why other people are allowed to make mistakes, but he's not. That's just all. I just want an answer. I just want an answer. I've yet to see one, but I, I just want one. It, it's it's got to come down to seniority at that point. And I know Cremo's new to the program technically, but he, he is a graduate transfer. So I know he's technically new to the program, but it's like, well, he's been playing a while. So I guess we got to give credence to him because he actually knows what's going on. I don't get it. It happens in hockey all the time. And I guess it's going to happen here too, accordingly. I, I just, it's just the way the coaches think. They like to prefer, uh, defer to the vets. I don't know what the thinking is. I guess it's because they, they'll eventually figure it out soon, sooner rather than later when maybe the new guy will take a, a little bit. And I, I get it somewhat, especially when you want to win a singular game and you're not looking towards next season or the following season. But at the same time, you got to let them fight through it. Whether it comes on the road against Butler or whether it comes at home against the ball, I don't know when it's going to come, but you got to figure it out. And he should be playing more. It's that plain simple. If it's seniority, it's seniority. But, you know, it just seems to be like when I go or anyone goes, you know, why isn't Javon Quinterly playing? Whether it be in the comment section, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. First thing people point to is his defense. But, you know, we've seen many other guys make mistakes, whether they're repeat offenders or once in a while offenders. You all know where I stand on this conversation. So I don't want to just drill on it too much. But it just seemed like we we're having something nice going. And then the last couple of games, boom, right back to the, our old ways. But I don't even want to dwell on that too much because I don't want to take away from what the Wildcats are doing as a whole right now. Chris. Earlier in the year, we told people, keep the hands off the panic button, be patient, stealing a page from your favorite quarterback's playbook, Aaron Rodgers, you know, to R-E-L-A-X. Right now, the Wildcats, they're doing pretty darn good. Look at the situation we're in right now. We kept saying to wait till Big East play. They're going to turn it around. There's going to be some growing pains, but once we go later on to the season, it's going to be a lot better. Right now, Nova is 15-4 and overall, 6-0 and in Big East play. 
all the people who used to ask me every time I go out on the weekends, oh, what's going on with Villanova? Oh, how come they're trash this year? How come they're whack this year? I don't know. It just got a little more quiet. Things are more peaceful. And uh, so far, all's right in the world. Yeah, they have uh, passed every test with flying colors so far, especially in the Big East portion of the schedule. And as I had mentioned on Tuesday, this was probably the toughest road test in the Big East outside of probably Marquette. So now that they've passed this, you got to think they're sitting pretty right now. I mean, obviously you don't want to get too comfortable, but we figured it would take a little bit to kind of figure out what's going on here, how to distribute the minutes, how, who's playing where, and you know, get a real starting lineup in there and how to utilize everybody. And it did take a little bit longer than expected. And it did have to take a loss to Penn and Furman to kind of get there. And you know what? If that had to happen for this team to play the way they are now, I'm all for it. I really am. I, I like the way they're playing. Their weaknesses have sort of been corrected. And I know there's a lot of basketball to be played. As we sit here today, I think they're doing pretty well for themselves. And they're going to continue to improve. At least I'd like to, especially with such a young team. And hopefully the seniors continue their output because as long as they're rolling i think the rest of the team should be rolling as well and following that example led by pascal and booth i'm pretty happy with where they are now and hopefully this seton hall game at home is kind of an indicator that yeah they kind of got it all together yeah i'm just loving the way that they've been playing especially on the road here in conference play i know they still have at marquette which you know the golden eagles are just so great at the pfizer form they haven't lost yet at home undefeated they're continuing to roll over opponents but then, of course, Butler is not an easy place to play. And Villanova did beat Providence. I will say, I think they lucked out a little bit in the sense that A.J. Reeves, their, one of their top scorers as a freshman, has been out for a while now with a foot injury. I don't think that if he was healthy, it would have changed the outcome. Like, I think Nova should still have one, especially with the way that they played. But that fire squad has just been dying for offense. And it was just a little bit of an adjustment period without him. They're starting to get their footing under them again. I know they had that win over Xavier. But overall, so far, so good for the Cats. They beat St. John's. They went into Creighton, took them down. They beat Butler at Butler. They already got Providence out of the way at the dunk. So far, so good. Now we've got Seton Hall on Sunday afternoon. This is not the same Pirate squad. Gone are the days of Angel Delgado coming in the post. Desi Rodriguez giving a little smirk, exuberating confidence. Kadeen Carrington lowering his shoulder down, lowering his head down and getting to the lane. Those guys are gone. But what we have left is Miles Powell, who right now is just honestly the heart and soul of this team. He's one of the top players in the conference. He's very, very exciting to watch, even though his team overall right now has just been struggling, 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 struggling. Chris, what can we expect from this Pirate squad? What's the lowdown on them? What's the deal with the, the Pirates this year? Seton Hall as a whole. Started off pretty well in non-con. Not going to lie. They they had some pretty big wins. You got to witness their big win over Kentucky in thrilling fashion and overtime. And they also beat Maryland at Maryland. Now, Maryland was unranked at the time, but they are now sitting pretty in the top, upper half of the polls. So got to give credit to them where credit is due. But – as Seton Hall usually does, they seem to sacrifice one or two big wins for the rest of the year, and now they're bad. They got swept by DePaul, got beat by Marquette, lost to Providence at Providence, and they were able to squeak out a victory against Butler at home, but they have not been playing hot since the Big East play started. Individually, like you said, you got Miles Powell. He's averaging 22 points per game, shooting 45% from the field and 
percent from beyond the arc you got quincy mcknight as the only other player averaging double digit points 10.3 he's shooting just under 50 percent from the field and sandro machiavelli averaging nine and a half points per game <laughs> 40, 47% from the field. As a whole, this team isn't that great from beyond the arc, shooting around 33%. But as I mentioned, Powell and McKnight could eventually hit some shots, and so could Mamo Kushavelli. I will try to pronounce his name correctly. He's averaging 37% from beyond the arc. And Miles Kale, got to mention him. He's averaging 9.4 points per game right now. We, Me and you both both kind of thought he would kind of take it that next step this year. And I, I thought he'd be having a better year so far. Hasn't worked out that way. Shooting under 40% from the field, so pretty inefficient. And not that great from the free throw line either. But he is still a viable threat for them. Pretty average. Not the greatest right now. These, Like you said, these are not the, the Pirates of the past. But they still can hold their own with their, as, as I mentioned, they have had their big wins in non-con. Just haven't put together uh, some Big East wins so far. Yeah, Miles Powell is a lot like Shamori Pons in the sense that he is a takeover type player. He can do nothing. He could be quiet. And then all of a sudden, the last seven minutes of the game, he's going to kick it into ultra high gear, drop 20 points all of a sudden, and then help spark a rally or just help put the foot on the gas and just run over their opponents. He is dangerous. He can go off at any moment, even when you feel confident in the, the job that Nova might be doing. I've seen him do it against Kentucky. I've seen him do it a couple times in non-conference play. This guy is a big-time player. He might be their only viable threat right now, unlike St. John's, who has all those different weapons. And then you look at Marquette, who also has another game-changing type player, Marcus Howard. He has the benefit of the Hauser brothers. Right now, it's not clear who Robin is on this Pirates team. Yes, Quincy McKnight is the only other player averaging in double digits, but he's a little bit up and down. He's been one of their key transfers, going from one SHU to another SHU, coming from Sacred Heart and doing pretty well so far. Sanjo Mamukelashvili, a.k.a. Mamu, a.k.a. Machiavelli. I like that one. That was, that was pretty good. Um, he is a stretch big. He can certainly knock down threes. He's a grinder for those boards. He's averaging just under 10 a game. Miles Kale, very, very underwhelming so far. It seems like against the big-time opponent, he's certainly going to shine. He had a couple very clutch shots against Kentucky in order to help the Pirates pull off that upset. He's also shown up against Maryland. He's coming off a hot game against DePaul. But other than that, he's been nowhere to be found. He's been very up and down. It seems like he only shows up against the big-name team, so maybe against Nova it'll be a different story. Michael Enzi, he's your classic grinder, lunch pail, go to work, throw out all the classic hustler sports cliches. He's your guy. He's starting to become more of a scoring threat. He's just not there yet. He's no Angel Delgado, but he's definitely a toughie, and he's definitely a tough guy. Torin Thompson, big-time transfer, been very underwhelming so far. I've been a little disappointed with his play, but he's certainly someone to watch for because he gets solid minutes in that rotation. Overall, Chris, this Seton Hall team, man, they lost four of the last five games. Like you said, they it seems like they just sell their soul for the big games, and then other than that, they just kind of vanish for the rest of the way. And not to mention, they got swept by DePaul for only the second time since conference realignment. You don't want to lose to DePaul. I don't care. DePaul's better this year. The second, this, I was surprised that this is actually the second time they got swept by them since realignment. They're the only team that gets swept by DePaul since realignment. That's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. And they were there for that first game, at least. I, I don't remember how the second game went, but I remember when it was in Chicago, they had a few chances to snatch that one. 
They should have won. They ran one of the stupidest plays at the end of that game. I think Machiavelli actually hacked up a shot for like no good reason. Like you had plenty of time to get that ball into Miles Powell's hands and you refused to do it. What were you thinking there? I watched that game in, in just pure amazement as to how bad the play calling was towards the end of the game there. But I was rooting for DePaul, obviously, because it's fun to see DePaul win. But for every end of the game like that against DePaul, there's the end of the game against the Butler where they're able to squeak it out. So I guess it evens out over time, but still. Let's hear it, Chris. Seton Hall seems to always bring a little something special to the basketball court whenever they line up against the Cats, face off against them. What are you feeling for this Sunday? Yeah, I think Villanova should probably win this handily. It seems we always talk about Seton Hall playing Villanova tough, and that is true if the game is at Madison Square Garden or at Seton Hall. It seems that every game at Villanova seems to be a blowout or eventually ends up becoming a blowout or, you know, fisticuffs of some sort. So I think Villanova wins this pretty handily. The way they're playing, the way Seton Hall's playing, hey, you know, it could flip on a 10. This could be a quote unquote trap game of some sorts where you, you think one thing and the exact opposite happens. The way momentum's working right now, I, I think Villanova wins this one pretty handily. The way Jay Wright's been coaching up this team and the way they've been able to shut down the big guys, hopefully Powell has a quiet night. And as a result, Villanova's seniors and uh, the occasional freshmen and sophomores are able to come in, hit some shots and uh, you know win this one pretty handily. Yeah, I'm putting my money on Bad boy Phil Booth and Eric Pascal, there's no way that they're going to lose the last time at home against Seton Hall. I think Nova should win this one pretty easily. Double digits, at least. Just the way that Nova's been playing, they've been playing so hot. Seven straight, 6-0 in conference play. It's hard to bet against them right now. I love the way that they're playing. They just seem to be always growing with every passing week. And unfortunately for Seton Hall, they're next on the menu. I'm feeling very confident. I know Ken Palm has... Villanova is a 77% favorite to win, predicting a final score of 77 to 69. But like I said, I'm I'm feeling one in double digits. I know there hasn't been a lot of those in Big East mm-hmm. Conference play in general, but I'm feeling one. But we'll see. If you can't make it to the Wells Fargo Center on Sunday, this game will be on Fox at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It'll be on Big Boy Fox, so don't go looking at Fox Sports 1. Don't go looking at Fox Sports 2. It's going to be on the Fox Network right after the St. John's Georgetown game. So nice little appetizer before you go in to watch some cats. And hopefully they'll come out with a win and we'll have some good news to talk about on Tuesday. For now, it's that time of the day where we stop what we're doing. Pop open the mailbag and answer your questions. We have a we got a crowd of mailbag because of what happened on Tuesday. We had great answers, great discussion. And unfortunately, it's gone. So we're going to have to go back. And then answer those. Then we're going to answer the ones that we got for this episode because we want to make sure we give the people what they want. As always, you can tweet us at S-O-N-N-Pod or leave a question in the comments section on VU Hoops and it'll find its way to us. We got a lot here. So, Chris, are you ready? Let's do it. All right. Time to open it up. First question is from Brendan Riley. Who ends the season with more assists? Sadiq Bey, who currently has 19, or Javon Quinterly, who currently has 17? I'm going Sadiq Bey just because of sheer volume of minutes. You know, you got a point there. But I, I got to go with Quinterly, man. Like, I know we, we just talked about the minutes, and I know we're thinking he might be glued to the bench for a good majority of the, for the rest of the year. He's in the point guard role. He's got to eventually rack up the assists, no? And, like, I know Bay's going to be in there, you know, who may be down low and then kick it out to an open booth or Gillespie, who's been red hot. And they'll hit the three, and there you go. There's your assist for the night. But if hopefully we do see Quinterly at some point, and he's able to, you know, kind of get one of those games going, 
and then he's just able to dish and distribute and hopefully he's able to take that title but i gotta say that is a fun prop bet. You think Vegas is taking bets on those? Because we'll get Mike J to put some money down. Yeah, we'll check with Seattle Mike J, or we'll check with Chris Lane. See if, see if they can check what are the odds on that, what's the money line, see if there's uh, some something we can do about this. But I'm still sticking to Sadiq Bay. I understand, yeah, Quinnley's a playmaker. He's a point guard. He'll get the ball in his hand more. But minutes just tells me that Sadiq Bay will somehow end up with more. We'll see, though. Next question is from FJ376. Will Brandon Slater redshirt? This is an excellent question. You know, at first it seemed like that was the plan, but I'm starting to think that at some point they just kind of messed it up. I guess when the rotations weren't solidified yet, and now he's kind of left in a spot where he is just no longer in the rotation. We saw him a little bit in the Xavier game. He played six minutes just before halftime to be a foul sponge. And then in the second half, he played, I think, about like a minute and a half. So he finished with like two minutes. I have a feeling that he's missed the threshold, unfortunately. He's missed the bus to redshirt town. And I think that, you know, next year he's going to be a true sophomore. Yeah, I thought he was redshirting. I think we all kind of did. But then, yeah, like you said, he played those uh, few minutes in that Xavier game. And you're like, wait a minute, shouldn't, shouldn't he not be playing? I know you mentioned like, oh, well, they kind of screwed it up. I, I'd like to think that the coaching staff didn't screw it up. At least I hope they didn't. But I don't know, maybe the swider injury compl- uh, complicated things. It's it, That's entirely possible, too. I don't, I don't know. I, I want him the red shirt, but it doesn't look like it's happening, like I said. Yeah, it's tough. I think even if Nova were to, you know, or if mysteriously Brandon Slater was injured and were, wasn't going to play for the rest of the season, I think that he's passed the threshold. He's played in or appeared in more than the percentage of games allowed, which I would have to double check, but I feel like the number is 20%. It's usually, it has to happen in the first half of the year, which obviously we're now in January, but I think at some point in December was the cutoff date slash he can't participate in over, I believe, I I actually believe it's 20% of the games. I think he showed up in what, six or seven games now? So right now it's not looking so hot for that percentage. I would like to see him stick for three or four years. Hopefully he doesn't lose that year of eligibility in a year where he he's barely played at all. Yeah, I didn't think he was that bad, and I know he played in like the first few games consecutively early in the year, and he didn't seem that yeah. bad. Um, you know, you could see the athleticism clearly and his quickness, mm-hmm. but it just seems like you know next year he's just going to be a true sophomore. That's just how it's going to be. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, uh, yeah. In his limited time, he hasn't looked half bad. It's just, I don't know, I, I feel like the, the development plan for him was just different than everybody else's, and I, I thought that included a retro year and just doesn't look like it. Now, this one I'm going to bundle because they're both about the same subject. This is from Notorious Golfer. Why play Cremo? He doesn't add very much. He's not a lights-out shooter. He's not great on D, and he's gone next year. Wouldn't you rather see more of the freshmen get his minutes? And then this is also from Ryan Shaver. Is it just me, or does Cremo, as awful as he's been, have some crafty footwork fakes down low in the paint? Can he exploit this more if or when his three isn't falling? I guess I should clarify, the times that I've seen him do this have been after he dribbles himself into a brick wall down low. All right, Chris. So Joe Cremo, Javon Quinterly, it seems to be the two hot topics in terms of minutes, (laughs) in terms of who should get the minutes. Should some guy get less or more? It always comes down to these two. Now, yeah. I would love to hear how you feel about this because uh, I think I know how you feel, but uh, let's just hear it. Let's put on wax. In past episodes, I've kind of – how I feel about Cremo come out in like spurts. So I've kind of said like, all right, he's going to eventually hit a big shot. 
I feel that his three-point ability is too good to just kind of keep on the bench for an extended period of time. But that being said, his defensive abilities are, are pretty bad. At least that's how it's been on the eye test. I know Brendan kind of provided us stats a couple weeks ago and kind of bunked that theory, but I feel like defensively he hasn't been all that great. That being said, he hasn't hit the, those big shots yet. He has not gotten a game where he's you know gone off and hit five big three-pointers out of seven attempts or whatever it may be. And I kind of agree with Notorious Golfer where it's like, I feel that those minutes should be distributed to the freshman. But that being said, I thought those minutes should have been given to Swider. Now with Swider being hurt, I think you got to play Cremo a bit. Now you could make the argument, well, you could give some of those minutes to Quinterly and I would be 100% on board with that. We all know how I feel about that. But if you want that type of player, the guy who can hit occasionally hit the long ball, you got to play Cremo. I have such mixed feelings about him because I, I do think he will eventually prove vital down the road because I do think he will hit one or two big shots that will just propel this team into a big win. But I don't, I, I just, it's just so frustrating seeing him play because he does have that slow release, as we talked about with Catherine, I believe it was last week. It really wasn't apparent to me until she pointed it out. And I'm just like, wow, that actually is pretty bad. But at the same time, I, I want him out there because he can, he does have that ability to hit the shot. When you factor that in, and then you also factor in the fact that he's not that great defensively, I, I do feel that those minutes should be distributed elsewhere. 100% agree with that. And then also the second part of the question where he kind of does have crafty footwork. I do see that, actually. I actually was kind of thinking about that the other day. Where I was like, oh, wow. Look, he, he's, he always gets himself in a bad situation, I feel like, and he is able to work out of it. And then, but usually he ends up dishing it. And, and I feel like that's okay. I'm, I'm fine with that because I'd rather have him pass it to an open Gillespie on the catch and shoot than him trying to go up with a layup. But he has tried the, the whole layup thing and it, it's worked every now and then. But yes, he does seem to find himself in worse situations than usually uh, the good ones. So that's how I kind of feel about it. I feel that he should be used, but I feel like he should be used sparingly. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot, definitely a lot to unpack here. Right now, Joe Cremo is shooting 40.4% from long range. I'll be honest, doesn't feel like it. Um, Not at I, all. No. <laughs> <laughs> to, to address Ryan Shaver's question first, he's definitely shown that ability to before, you know, post up Cremo, drive inside, do what you need to do to fake out the defense and then finish at the basket. He's done that a few times, and it is definitely viable, but his role on the team right now is to be on the team, help space the floor, help spread it out, and be a sharpshooting threat. He was brought here because he can shoot lights out. He shot over 45% at his last season in Albany. The man's a sniper. I've said before in the show, I feel like that Nova needs to run more plays towards his way, or at least set him up more, because God knows he can't create his own shot. Now, in the Xavier game, he took way more shots than usual. Granted, he didn't really shoot at a high clip, but it was the fact that he was launching from deep that I thought, okay, this is good. He's now feeling confident enough where he can get set and shoot him, but eventually he's got to knock him down. Yes, defensively, definitely a bit of liability, and I agree with Notorious Golfer in that sense, but I will say this. I think the reason why I've been very, 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 very incredibly patient with Cremo, even, you know, I know he's shooting over 40% from long range, but it aesthetically doesn't look like it or feel like it and that's because we saw someone struggle even worse far worse than how cremo is doing right now and that was eric pascal last year who started the season shooting two for 27 just flat out disgusting four percent clip from long range a lot of people told him to stop shooting drive inside blah 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 now with cremo it seems like you know people want him gone people say you should snip his minutes 
I say keep shooting. Look at the way that Eric Pascal shot his way out of the slump and just absolutely torched the opposition in the second half of the season. And we especially lit up and had a party in the NCAA tournament. And obviously, you know, we look back at that Kansas game where it was just his game. Joe Cremo, I believe that, you know, he did not be a sniper. He did not have the reputation of being a three-point shooter for no reason. I want him to just keep on shooting. I want him to get set, find a spot, and pull it. I don't care if he's going to – I just need him to see him shoot it. You know, we were talking a little bit for for the last couple weeks before the Xavier game how he seemed like he was being way too tentative, way too passive, like he's going to do a pump fake, and because it's not quick enough or he's not quick enough, the defense will quickly adjust and then get right back on him, and then he would dish. He wasn't really taking shots. Before the Xavier game, previously for the entire month of January – so that includes four games. He shot a combined one for eight on the floor, which is ugly. And that doesn't include the fact that he only took one three against Providence and Creighton and only two against St. John's. His role is to be a sniper. He's got to be, he's got to get set and he's got to take off. Because of the way that Eric Pascal was able to find a shot, that is why I feel like Cremo can do the same thing. It's like a baseball hitter that you know can hit 350 or 325, but right now he's batting .087. Eventually has to even itself out. I think with Cremo, yeah. it's going to happen. Just We just got to wait. We saw it with Pascal. The man was shooting 4% last year. Everyone wanted yeah, him to stop shooting. <laughs> he found a shot. I believed in him. And I believe in Cremo too, that he's going to find a shot. Yeah, you kind of forgot that. About, I, at least I kind of forgot about that, about Pascal. Because I remember the, the game I went through last year against Marquette. Like That was like the the low point of his shooting. And that was actually the game. I think he kind of started to turn around. And then after the March and April, he had, it was like, wait, he was actually bad at shooting at one point. So I do agree with you on that point, but I feel like where it differs is that and a notorious golfer kind of brought it up in his question slash point. Cremo's done after this year. Pascal, obviously we were going to have, or at least this year, obviously he could have left at the end of last year, but still, I feel like he, Probably was going to stay regardless. Cremo's done. So would it be better long-term, at least just as a fan thinking about the team in the next year and the following years, would it be better long-term to kind of give those minutes to the freshmen or specifically Swider slash Quinterly where they can actually develop a shot and help this, you know, get those developmental minutes that will help the team down the road. Now it might not help this year, but Maybe in two or three years, it's going to pay dividends. You, you, you don't know. And I think that's kind of where the hesitancy to kind of keep Cremo out there lies. And it's that he's done. He's basically a mercenary at this point. He's one and done. Why not give the minutes to the guys who are actually going to be here for three to four years? Look, I think with Swider out, I think, as you said, you know, it definitely his minutes definitely kind of transferred or beefed up Cremo a little more. I'm always down for JQ playing time. I mean, that's that's that goes without saying. I've said that for like the longest time. But his three-point shooting ability right now, it's not great. But I bet you, if he goes on a tear and goes five for six from long range, we're gonna we're gonna be clamoring for more. <laughs> we're gonna be no, clamoring for more. I agree. Like I like I said before, like I feel like he's going to have one of those games where it's like defining like everyone like during baseball season it was like defining Yankee moment when Stan hit that walk-off home run against the Mariners, like that's his Yankee moment. I feel like Cremo's going to have that Villanova moment at some point. He's going to have that game where he figures it out. But at the same time, as a fan, you want to also think about the long term. And I think long term it might be best to kind of give those minutes elsewhere. So Cremo, if you drop seven for nine from long range against Seton Hall. 
and the comment section comes flocking to you. Just know, just know, just just listen to this pod first. It's, just fast forward. I don't even know what minute we're on now. I don't even know the minute mark, but just fast forward the question section and just know. I told people to be patient. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Next question. And it always, you know, it always, like we said, you know, Joe Cremo and Javon Cornelly. Senior freshman, yin and yang. It'll always go to them. And this next question is from Andrea Lardier. Why isn't Quinterly playing? <laughs> I don't uh, know. You knew it was coming. You know, it's always coming. I don't know if Jay Wright's trying to teach him a lesson. If that, you know, if there's a lesson to be taught here, you know, that's that's between them. That's between the locker room. That's between Quinterly and Wright. But right now, I can't find a reason to justify three minutes or five minutes, or at least, sorry, not that I can't find a reason. I haven't heard of a valid or like a really, really good reason as to why him playing three minutes or five minutes is not only beneficial for his growth, but also overall beneficial for the team. Yeah. I kind of wish we had some transparency on that front. We're still, still waiting on it. Like you said, it, it kind of sucks that we we're just not sure. I mean, we kind of can guess and educated guesses on that front, but still it, it kind of sucks that there's no transparency there. And uh, I wish he was playing more. Wish we had a better answer for you, but that that's what it is. If Andrew really wants, we can give her the cons, and it's defensively, he's still very raw. He's not physically strong. He's not really being a pass-first point guard, even though his assist rate is one of the higher on the team. He's looking to score, and I know that that might rub people out the wrong way, uh, whether it be he's not 100% polished on the offensive and defensive schemes that the team runs. That could be that too, but it like, you know, like we talked about earlier, it seemed like we were turning a corner. Unfortunately, we did not. Next question is from Briz underscore two. How do you think the team has developed from the beginning of the season? Also, what do you think about Javon Cornelius playing time? We talked about it on the show, so we're, we're going to step away from JQ. Uh, I just want to talk about the first half of his question. Like we said, man, I just love the way that this team has grown. There was definitely some ugly turbulence on and off the court throughout non-conference play. But you look at the way that the team's playing now, the way that the team's operating right now, the streak that they're on, still undefeated in Biggie's play, you you can't be anything but proud and happy with the way that this team is going right now. Because, you know, if you asked me a month ago, and I know that, you know, I, I was confident in that things would turn around in Biggie's play, I was feeling like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. They are going to crumble at Hinkle Fieldhouse, or they are going to crumble at Providence. I, overall, I thought the records would would have been good, would have been fine. They would have definitely finished among the top two or three, but undefeated right now, six and zero, possibly seven and zero after Sunday. You can't be anything else but proud and happy right now. I had the same sentiments as you about a month ago, and I thought every road game for this team in the Big East was just going to be an absolute disaster, especially defensively. But it seems that. Every road game so far defensively has been getting better game in and game out. I just wish they do continue to improve defensively and just continue to improve offensively as well. I mean, I feel like we kind of know what we're getting on the offensive front, but defensively always seems to be a wild card, but so far so good there. I'm pretty impressed with it so far. And obviously we still got the biggest test with at Marquette coming up eventually. The way that they've been able to gel together, especially after tough losses against Furman and pen games that this team we're not used to seeing blow games to it, it's kind of encouraging that they're able to kind of rally together and and figure it out i understand there's a lot of basketball left to be played but as we sit here towards the middle of january i'm pretty happy with it yeah the team is just continuing to trend upwards i think it helps that phil booth and eric pascal are hitting their shots they're able to score on the those one-on-ones that they weren't exactly very efficient with earlier in the year 
overall the team is moving the ball around a lot better. Colin Gillespie, as we've now seen, is a catch-and-shoot scorer. Probably, you know, I think this is it. I think this is finally the starting lineup, but Bay and Jermaine Samuels, Colin Gillespie, Phil Booth, and Eric Pascal, I think that it helps that Jay Wright has finally found a starting five, and he now can just use the pieces around around them. DCR, you know, if he's going to come off the bench when he's healthy and drop 12-8 and eight or 10-8, and eight, I'm all for that. If Joe Cremo can find a shot, all for that. If Javon Cornerly, which, you know, I'm still all for more playing time. I still think that Phil Booth and Eric Pascal should not be playing 38, 39 minutes a game. So just take a few off of each and put them over to JQ. I'll be cool with that. And defensively, of course, this team has just gotten a lot more polished on that end of the court. There's still more growing to be done, but I love the way that this team is trending upwards. I honestly love it. Next question is from Fred Rung. Does anyone actually believe Jay when he continuously says he wants to reduce EP and Phil's minutes so they don't wear down? So uh, (laughs) 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 that's a great question, Fred. Uh, You know, I was reading the comment section of the post Butler game and I noticed that someone mentioned how like, oh, it's great that Jay finally gave Phil Booth and Eric Pascal rest. And I was like, oh, wow, you gave them rest. And then I was like, let me look up the box score real quick. And then I saw 38, 39 minutes, and I was like, what? <laughs> Are we at the point now where one minute or two minutes is considered good rest for them? No, no, no. I think Jay wants to do it, but I think he gets caught up in just having the seniors out. I think he loves it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I kind of alluded it, alluded to it earlier. I think Jay just wants to go with the guys he trusts the most, and those two are certainly <laughs> the the upper echelon of that, that category. So... Yeah, I, I just don't see a change in either. It kind of sucks because I'm afraid what's going to happen come March, but it, if it's working now, so I guess we can temporarily be okay with it. I agree, Fred. You know, I think that I would love to see their minutes drop, but I'm not sure if I 100% believe Jay right now. But we'll we'll be looking. Last set of questions is from Jerry Quinn. First one is, are we happy with Samuel's development this year? I would say, yeah, totally. I mean... You could see it early on that he has a knack for getting rebounds and crashing the offensive glass. And then when he's able to score, it's a sight to behold. I think he's growing more confident, which is definitely what he needs. What do you see, Chris? No, yeah, I I agree with everything you just said there. As I mentioned before, he had that big rebound for his only basket where he just basically threw Brunk away and then went up for the dunk. That was pretty impressive right there. And it was at a big moment, too. I think Butler could have gone down the court and kind of for at least the time maybe i don't i don't remember the exact score at the time but it felt like momentum was shifting there and that just took the crowd right out of it that was one of the bigger baskets in the game and it was it was the only basket and i think it just shows that he's playing with reckless abandon but it's also with confidence too we always knew he was going to just play recklessly but i mean in an endearing and good way because he just seems to fly all over the place and get the boards when you need it and i'm pretty impressed so far and This is coming from me where I thought he was just basically a lost cause at the beginning of the year. (laughs) Jerry's second question is how many threes do we need to beat Seton Hall on Sunday? I'm going to, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a nice 13 piece, 13 piece family meal. 13. That's a lot. Because this team only hit what? 11, 12 against Butler. And I felt like that was a lot. You know, it might not necessarily be how many we need. I'd say to need, Definitely double digits, but I'm feeling that Nova will hit 13. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, 10 to 12. I think that'll be fine. They should win regardless, though. Yeah. If they don't, yeah, there's yeah. a problem. <laughs> 
And his last question is, how many paychecks could you miss until it becomes a financial burden? <sighs> you know, that's a... Well... <laughs> <laughs> you know, this this is just... This might be the toughest question we've ever received here. This one was just so unexpected. I, man. Um, hmm. <laughs> you know, one. I'm putting it at one. Honestly, <laughs> one. One. <laughs> one. Really? <laughs> Oh wait! Oh wait! Oh wait! No, sorry. Oh, could I miss until it becomes a financial burden? Oh, 0. 0.5. <laughs> zero, zero, zero. Student loan, zero. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm gonna go with more than one. <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm okay for now. It, it, it's I I wouldn't want to miss a paycheck. That would be a pretty that would be a pretty big problem. I'm sure this is related to the government shutdown somehow, some way. But yeah, I I, I feel bad for those people. That 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 just sucks. I, I think I, I could withstand maybe one or two pay cycles, and then I'd just be like, uh, "What what the heck's going on here? Let's um, let's give me some money." I'm chipping away on the freelance grind, and honestly, I think I think I'm gonna need them all. I think I think I think uh, yeah, point five or zero, <laughs> I could miss. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if we got something big that weekend to do, then yes, it would it would probably go down to zero as well. Never really thought about that. Uh, I don't know. I just kind of engross myself in the work, and then hopefully everything just works out when it comes to paying stuff. Yes, yes. But yeah, great question, Jerry. Uh, you know, I never great thought question. that that this would have been the toughest question because I honestly, I really had to think about that one. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to the State of the Nova Nation podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play or Podomatic. You have many, many options. Please check back at viewhoops.com. We are just continuing to pump away content. You know how it is. We are getting into the heart of Biggie's play, and it is just an ever never-ending machine over there. So please check back and check often. You can also follow the site, View Hoops, on social media, at View Hoops. That's good for Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me, Eugene Repay, at Repay 5 And you can follow me, Chris Stanzial, at the Stansman on Twitter. Nova Nation. Nova Nation, happy Thursday. Have a good weekend, and shout-out to Chris Lane.